Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody. This is Ben and Dan coming at you live with another episode of Juanced. How you doing, Dan? Oh, I'm doing great. Awesome. Another week. Another week. Less of a sigil, more of a sigil. <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> I don't even know where I am. What's going on? You're on Juwan's land. That's what all my, that matters. What, what my name is, what my identity is. Uh, no, we got we got those kids at home, and uh, what I've realized that is that there's zero uh, work life balance. That's completely disappeared. What do you think about that? Zero, absolutely zero, below zero, <laughs> below zero. <laughs> Yes. Um, we've completely taken that away. It's it's funny we find these ways to like kind of make this dark humor joke about it, but like you have it, to. It's really not sustainable. <laughs> I'm like trying to sit there working in the middle of the day on Don't like try. all kinds of assignment, and I'm I'm literally my wife has to see to sit in uh, our bedroom. We're in a three a three room apartment. My wife's in the bedroom because she's teaching Zoom school, oh and and the kids. I mean, yeah. so, so she's basically a performer at this stage. She has to be in a room with the door shut. Has to be quiet because she's like we're sitting here doing this podcast. She has to be. We'll get through it. Speaking of podcasts, we'll same here. It's horrible. <laughs> we have a great show for you guys tonight. We have a wonderful guest with us, the member of Knesset MK, Ruth Wasserman Landy. Is it Landy or Land? How do you, you pronounce know, it? My, my grandfather, my late grandfather, Noach, said Landy. That's the German Landy, pronunciation, yes, right? Yes, and he insisted. So out of respect for him, <laughs> I'm trying to, to keep that up. But everybody makes, you know... Make, make makes up a different version. Yeah, I've been called Pfefferman, 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 whatever you want. Pepperman. Pepperman. And, and what is it? The original, uh, also German, I think, is Pfefferman. Pfefferman. Like with a P-F. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but Pfefferman. We, in, in English, we always said Pfefferman. Yeah. And in Hebrew, I just go with everyone and I'm Pfefferman. And I, just, <laughs> I stop fighting it. What, what can we do? Welcome to Jew Anst. Before we uh, get going, one quick announcement. So basically, we'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us right now on Facebook. Uh, thanks for tuning in. For those of you listening on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms later in the week, I'd like to let you know that there is a live version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page uh, at uh, facebook.com slash Jewance Podcast. Uh, and when we record or watch all of our episodes live at our website, www.jewance.com. And of course... This is a great chance to remind you all to subscribe and give us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, uh, FM, whatever podcast Wherever platform you, you get you your to, podcast. And follow us on Instagram at Juanced and on Twitter at, at Juanced Podcast. All right, everybody, check it out. Uh, as you know, we rely on the generous support of listeners like you to make Juanced a regular feature in your life. So if you care to be a supporter of the show, 
You can make a one-time donation on our PayPal account or become what we would prefer, a regular contributor on our Patreon account. We promise some great new swag coming out soon. In fact, Dan is pressuring me every day now to go and and find out what we're going to do. It will probably be some sort of a mug coaster situation, but we'll keep you posted. Mug coaster situation featuring our original artwork by artist Roy Margaliot. Terrific guest, by the way, if you haven't heard that episode, we strongly uh, urge you to check it out. Um, and also, of course, if your business or organization would like to become a regular sponsor, we'd, we'd more than love or to talk about sponsor. that. Or a one-time sponsor. Or a one-time sponsor, we would more than uh, love to talk about that as well. Uh, you can uh, reach us by going to www.juanced.com. Absolutely. And do you know, Benny, by the way, and I, I bring this up now, uh, it's kind of become a recurring theme. We're up to listeners in 90 countries now. I think I saw that there's like a great uh, 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 a swath, swath of, of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, and the Middle East. which have Most of us. the Middle East, except Yemen and Oman. Come on, Oman. I, f- I feel like I can deal with Oman. I don't know how to get to Yemen, but I can get a listener in Oman. Hmm. Just one. I'm sure we can get an Omani listener. But we, we have uh, literally the rest of the region and a good chunk of Africa and Central Asia and South Asia are now... Uh, people listening to us. That's amazing. So uh, again, if if that's you, if you're coming from a one a country that it's not so obvious why you would be a Juwan's listener, uh, please reach out to us. We're we're interested in your story, and uh, we hope to make uh, those kind of stories into into an episode one day. Uh, Dan, I think there's one other thing uh, that we wanted to, to uh, announce. There uh, is. We'd like to introduce Juwan's Live. So of course, these times more than most, we understand the challenges of connecting to an audience. With creative and meaningful content, if you're looking to engage your community, we've got the perfect solution for you, Juanced Live. Just like on the show, Benny and I can be engaging, inquisitive, dare I say witty in person too. Our unique talent in bringing out complexity, nuance, and captivating content from guests doesn't have to end at the studio door. So if you're interested in hosting a live dedicated podcast with audience participation, virtual or hopefully soon in person, or having us moderate your organization or community's next panel event, we've got the perfect solution for you. Plus, with our extensive network and connections to a broad range of fascinating guests on a range of topics, Juwants got you covered. For more information on how to engage Juwants live for your next event, visit us today at www.juwants.com. So this is uh, uh, our next our next portion here is going to be a regular segment on the show. Uh, we we did one last week, and uh, this this picks up from where we left off. It is our weekly COVID report coming to us from the very very capable uh, and, and analytical mind of Doctor Natan Davidovich. Uh, he is the director of R and D at BrainQ and a COVID data scientist. Um, so here's the deal. An incredible 3.4 million Israelis have been vaccinated. That's 43% of the population that has either received at least one shot, like me and Dan, or recovered from COVID infection. Of the high-risk 60-plus-year-old crowd, 93%, I'll repeat that, 93% have been vaccinated. That's incredible. So with so many people now immunized, why aren't we getting back to normal yet? Uh, So here the blame falls primarily on the mutated virus strains, which are now responsible for the majority of infections in Israel. While previous lockdowns were able to bring the rate of infection down, the mutations are an estimated 40 to 80% more infectious and continue to drive the spread of the virus even when under Israel's, I must add, porous lockdown uh, conditions. 
This should serve as a warning to other countries like the United States that have not yet seen the scary effects of the virus mutations, but unfortunately will in the coming months as these strains of the virus will become dominant. Despite this, our government here in Israel has decided to begin easing lockdown restrictions. Even though the vaccine has shown early signs of being highly effective, we don't yet know that it will help to bring down the number significantly, especially once the lockdown has been lifted as it has been uh, today. It's a bit like jumping out of a burning building while the firemen are still in the process of inflating a safety cushion for you to land on. That makes me feel great. <laughs> Thanks, Natan. We are confident that the vaccines will help us eventually. We just have to hope our hospitals don't crash before we get to that point. You know, I have to say, Dan, I just read that, and um, A, it kind of scares the bejesus out of me, and, and B, I really hope that it's not a... Um, I don't know why they call that a harbinger of things to come in that last sentence about our hospitals not uh, crashing before we get to that point. Harbinger? I don't know. People say that. We have to look it up. We do. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it. What do you, what do you think about what's going on right now? Look, I, I'm, I'm kind of at this point, and of course I have the luxury of, of saying this because I'm relatively young, I'm healthy, and, and I was never completely concerned about getting the the virus itself, you know, I just didn't want to become a spreader. I didn't want to be a part of the problem. But, you know, we look around, we see some people taking it seriously. We see segments of society. I'm not going to point fingers here, not we know keeping who you it. Are. Um, and, and, but we also see a lot of people who are just getting sick of it. You know, during the first lockdown, people took it extremely seriously. And, and we got down to single digit infection numbers and then it just came back like like a wildfire, and I think I think we're just looking around, you know. Speaking for myself, certainly, but I, I see this around, and, and we look around, and we see that a lot of the decisions seem to be more political than they do, you know, um, medical related or, or come from careful practical considerations, and, and people are just getting to the end of their patience here. Um, and so, at what point, you know, do you say? enough's enough you know when people are getting vaccinated whoever wants in this country whoever wants to have been vaccinated is vaccinated already at least with the first shot i'm getting my second shot um this week and, and at what point do we just need to accept some kind of risk expand our hospitals i don't know why they haven't done that over the past year and and start moving on yeah and for the record i'll just say that neither dan nor i are at all credentialed experts in this in this field not so even close. our opinions are ours alone and you definitely shouldn't uh, follow us for any advice here but but i agree with dan on this it, it seems that um and there's no there's no easy way to say this it, it just seems like you have two choices here in this, in this sort of a thing. You can either be in some sort of a scenario whereby you continually lock down, open up, lock down, open up, like an accordion and in all the different ways that that happens. Or you can go get vaccinated and do your part to try to, uh, you know, get out of this while at the same time remaining cautious in your own way to do it. But... Uh, there's, there's cautious and there's, you know, we, we need to let life move on while distancing masks etc you can do it you can do it and um I, look this is this is the part that's difficult we're not going to see if these things work unless we take a chance to see that our precautions and our vaccinations sure. have worked so please get vaccinated i think that there was a day last week where we th I, I saw a post that like a thousand vaccines were going to get thrown into the garbage yeah. in Hiltzalia and you know if, if people didn't come and take advantage of them 
literally people. There are uh, people in America that, and in other countries around the world that would pay serious money for a vaccine. So you are fortunate if you're a listener in Israel that uh, you know, hasn't been vaccinated, that you have a steady supply of vaccines that you can go get now. So go get a vaccine. Don't be a jabroni. That's my message. No, I mean, I, I don't. I don't really know how else to say it. But uh, you know, not not to sound like a COVID. Had a cousin. Had a cousin, um, Jewish in America, write to me half jokingly, and and maybe she's listening. Sarah, how you doing? And she said, "Could I make Aliyah get there, do the two week quarantine, get vaccinated, and come back?" And and I would. She she said she would still be with all of that vaccinated before she would ever get the vaccine in the states. Probably. Except that the airport's closed in Chicago. Uh, I said, except for the, the airport closing. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's easier than crying. Exactly. Um, but but today is Super Bowl Sunday. Right. We're recording this on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, in just an hour and a half from when we're recording this, I'm going to turn on my laptop and do something that I've been doing every year since I made Aliyah 16 years ago, and that's stay up all night. And watch the Super Bowl. And today you have the extra added benefit of also being able to watch on live TV a super spreader event. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to limit the crowds, but yeah. I know, I know. But Look, on. I love football. It's Florida. Like, it, it's, one of the <laughs> it's one of the things that, um, that I, I truly miss about America is American sports. I tried getting into European sports. Nah. It's just not the same. I love football. It is the greatest sport, not maybe not to play, but to watch. It's the greatest sport ever made, and, and this is a really cool Super Bowl. Um, you have the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes, who is maybe the most gifted quarterback, or as you know, Colin Coward likes to say on his show, the most gifted player or thrower of the football that he's ever seen. It's, the guy is unbelievable. He's a magician. He's athletic as hell. The best arm I've ever seen, but he's also an amazing decision maker. Um, and he's young, and he's already an MVP and a Super Bowl champion at the age of 25, and um, he's going up against the legendary, perhaps the greatest quarterback that ever lived, Tom Brady, who's going for a seventh Super Bowl victory. Isn't he like 44 years old? He's 43, okay? Wow. I get this. He's 43. He has played. He's been in the NFL for 21 years, okay? He's been to 10 Super Bowls. This is his 10th Super Bowl, which means... Over how many years? Over 20, 21 years. A 20, 20, 20-year 20 career. So, so literally, you could have had a child. If, if he had a child the, the year that he was first drafted, that child would, could be playing football today in the there, NFL. There are rookies who were born his first year of playing. Wow. And the thing is, is that he's just as sharp and just as good as when he was younger. It's unbelievable. Do you think, do you think this is his last year? Uh, no. He keeps saying he's going to play until he's not as good anymore. He, he's saying, I'll play till I'm 45 and, and now maybe longer. Whatever regimen he's doing for health and fitness is working. Look, he was never the the best athlete. That was never his thing. Okay. He's probably, in a, and I think I've seen this somewhere, he might be the slowest person in the NFL. He was never, even when he was young, he was never a runner. His arm is good. It's not amazing. He's got a very good arm. It's still great. To, to be able to throw like he does at 43 is, is unbelievable. But what sets him apart from, from other uh, quarterbacks, including other legendary quarterbacks, first of all, his, uh, his learning 
and, and preparation for the game is is from what I've read and what I've heard is is above anything else in the game right now. He prepares, you know, like a like a general studying for a war. He prepares. He knows the other team. There, there's something amazing about football and the quarterbacks, especially. They have to learn how to read defensive coverages. Mm. It's, it's incredibly complex, and he does it faster and better than anyone else. Um, his decision making is as quick as it gets in the NFL and good decision-making. His arm is still just as good as when he was younger. And um, his leadership. And, you know, you watch, you actually watch both of these quarterbacks, even if they're down 20 points, and he showed this in the, in the last time he won a Super Bowl against uh, the Atlanta Falcons, even if they're down three touchdowns, four touchdowns, they're not out of it because they're that good. At both playing the game and commanding the team around them to keep up morale. It's incredible. I look forward to watching it. On a personal note, um, because of COVID, we're not having our usual Super Bowl party. Which which I will say is, is awesome. Uh, I, I've been to a couple of Dan Super Bowl parties, and it's great that here in Israel there's a place to go where you, for for that little moment, even though it's in the middle of the night, you kind of feel uh, like you're back at home. Yeah. He makes, uh, somebody makes chili. I make chili. Somebody's going to make, you know, uh, there's going to be chips and salsa. There's going to be wings. There's going to be the lots deal. of beers. But, 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 but for, the fir- for the first time, and now that my kids are older, I'm actually going to wake them up and uh, hopefully watch the game for the first time. I'll watch the Super Bowl with my kids. Uh, do you have any predictions for the game? <sighs> I have a re- and, and again, when you're listening to this, you will have known. So, so you'll know right. immediately if Dan You're, you're going to listen to this after we recorded it. Watching the Chiefs play, watching Patrick Mahomes play, watching Andy Reid, the coach, coach that team, I can't see them being beaten. I, I can't imagine it. They're that good. I, I kind of feel bad, and I think you kind of you have to feel a little bit bad for Tampa, in, in, in not the team, but the city, in that they finally are, you know, they're hosting the Super Bowl during COVID, and I think it's the first time in NFL history that the host city has a team in the game. That's right. And, uh, you know, I, it's one of those things, like I feel bad for them, but I don't because, you know, they're in the Super Bowl. That's pretty cool. They also, they also they haven't this been to a Super Bowl year since the 90s. won uh, the Stanley Cup, and I believe they also won uh, another, I think, I think it was the World Series. I don't know. Uh, this would have been like a trifecta. If they win, this is like a big deal. But they were not able to really celebrate any of those things. It's true. Limited capacity. Uh, for the city of Tampa... It's a double-edged sword, right? Even if there wasn't COVID, the fact that the, the their team is playing in the in the game means that they don't have two out-of-town crowds coming. So if you're a business that makes money it's off true. of the event, you're not going to make as much because, you know, you only have and, half. And because of COVID, far fewer people are going to be the game. Right. They're limited. Look, these are stadiums that hold 60,000, 70,000 people. They got, they got like a third. I think they're they capping it at 22,000. Yeah, they're capping it at 22,000. Um, so it's I, exciting. It's exciting. It's, yeah. it's to watch... The proven greatest quarterback of all time go up against who, the person who could possibly become the greatest quarterback right. of all time. Um, two fantastic teams, two very exciting teams. I hope it's a shootout. Um, I hope it's a high-scoring game because in, in in recent years, Super Bowls have not been high-scoring games. Um, and what, what Super Bowl number is this? 55. 55. So I remember being a kid in Minneapolis at Super Bowl 26 in Minneapolis. It was the Washington Redskins, who are now the Washington football team. The Washington football team. And the Buffalo Bills. I remember that game. And I remember, I didn't go to the game because, you know, I didn't go to the game, but I, I did go to the NFL Experience. Uh, and I remember, even even today, I remember being a kid at the NFL Experience 
in uh, uh, at the Minneapolis Convention Center, and it was very cool. You got to like um, you got to throw a football, and in, in like at that time it was like brand new technology. It was like really crappy old virtual reality. <laughs> you put on virtual reality goggles and like threw a football at a wall. Um, and they had all these neon lights and then like it's sponsors. Just, just it was, cool. it was fun. It's a fun uh, sport. And the Super Bowl came to town and, and it was, it was in Minneapolis. So it's like, it's a cold Super Bowl. They were able to do it because they, they were in the, the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome. Um, and I don't know, and maybe you can say, uh, are they ever going to have a cold weather Super Bowl again? No, I don't think, uh, look, uh, in my lifetime, I can't remember one. It's all either in a dome or in, in a warm location. And the domes are kind of like fading. They're a thing of the past. There aren't that many domes left. No, they're doing them. They're doing them. They're doing them with new technologies. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, so it's not going to be like a snowy Super Bowl. Now, look, yeah. uh, you, you had the NFC Championships two weeks ago in Green Bay. And it was snowing yeah. and it was freezing and uh, it was an amazing game. They, well, they did have the Super Bowl in, in Minneapolis a couple years ago when the uh, yeah. when the new when the uh, U.S. Bank field opened. Yeah, they did. And, and the... The Vikings were actually really good that year, so people were hoping uh, that they would make it. But no, they uh, just blow it. Eh, they made it close. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm excited, and you'll be listening to this knowing who has won already. Uh, my prediction: the Chiefs. Um, as, as much as you know, I respect Tom Brady, and I love watching the uh, the Bucks, and it'd be cool to see the home team win a Super Bowl. I just, I, it's, I cannot imagine this Chiefs team losing a game. So uh, with that, without further ado, Dan, introduce our guest. We have with us, as I said, Ruth Wasserman-Lande, an Israeli member of Knesset from the Blue and White Party, Kacholavan. My glasses are completely fogging up. This is, <laughs> this is our first live episode in six months. Um, raised in South Africa, Ruth is the founder and CEO of Ruth, Global Innovative Advisory. She's a diplomat, a lecturer, a columnist, a social activist and underachiever, particularly focused <laughs> on the Arab Thank population you, in Israel. <laughs> uh, also a Middle East affairs commentator and expert for various media outlets around the world. Ruth is served as an advisor to the late President Shimon Peres. I'm sure that was unbelievable and fascinating. And uh, the de facto deputy ambassador at the Israeli embassy in Egypt. And for almost a decade as the deputy director general for international affairs at the Israeli Federation of local authorities. Did I miss anything? Did you also invent a language just, at some just point? Just a thing here and there, but I won't go into that. It's you're also You're also a mother, and exactly. you speak how many languages? Um, I can't tell you. I'd have to get rid of you. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a question off the bat, because it's interesting. How does one advise Shimon Peres? Yeah, well, I always uh, you know, say that uh, he was more of an advisor to me rather than I advise him. <laughs> what on God's earth can you possibly advise Shimon Peres on? Especially international affairs, I mean, it's ridiculous. But I did learn a lot from him. He was, uh, I'm sure. He wanted, he came up with these wonderful, amazing, astounding, innovative ideas at 11 p.m. And was very, very angry when at 5 a.m. the following morning, he realized it, w- it was still not done um, or carried, th- carried out. So um, it's, it's interesting. I think like <sighs> I was just talking about this the other day with somebody. He, for years, he was always like the elder statesman. Like he's he's he was old before yeah, he was old. He was old right? before he was old. I think that he was, um, by and large, a visionary. Um, he sort of saw things before they happened, mm-hmm. and um, clearly, yes. And um, I think that was his main um, 
impact and uh, heritage and legacy. Um, and very often when he thought up of these things, um, he was laughed at. He was really at times even ridiculed in Israeli politics. Um, and yet afterwards, you know, everybody sort of looked at his ideas as um, nothing other than visionary. Um, for example, the new Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, nanotechnology, just to mention two. Incredible, incredible when you, I mean, he's not just a figure that's great during his time. He was recognized. I think outside of Israel, he was recognized as a truly historic figure. And definitely, maybe, definitely. And a lot of leaders, both from left and yeah. right all over the world, saw him as a kind of a, a mentor, um, really. I mean, Barack Obama named him as, as yeah. one of his mentors. So, Unbelievable. Yes. Unbelievable. So we, we have a lot of ground to cover with you, and I'm sure uh-huh. we could do many hours of podcast, but the night is short and, and time is short. Extremely. <laughs> and, and you have such a fascinating bio and so many things we want to talk about. Let's start with the most obvious, uh, if you don't mind. You you uh, wound up, it's it's 10.15, 10.20 at night here in Israel, and you wound up a long day at the Israeli Knesset, the parliament. Yes. Uh, and you, you're a newcomer. <laughs> Are you the newest, the newest member of... No, no, not longer. The newest. <laughs> oh my. In fact, this happened <laughs> after me. Thank God. <laughs> Um, so I'm the second, the second newest, newest, yes. So you can pull rank on people. Yeah. And one guy. <laughs> the kids, right? <laughs> the kids. <laughs> Who's newer than you? Uh, Anat Knafo from the Yeshatid okay. party. Mm-hmm. So you're in blue and white, and uh, it's it's been announced already that you're going to be running again in these next elections. Mm-hmm. But we're not doing an election episode. No, no, uh, no. no. We'll, we'll give you a chance at the, at the last minute. It's only fair, of course, since you came all the way here. Um, but what is it like being, you know newly thrown into Knesset? So, first of all, it's extremely hard work, uh, if you take it seriously. Yeah. So, because I take everything very seriously, um, I, uh, I'm i working pretty hard. I mean, a lot of committees, uh, the Knesset committee, which is a procedural committee, uh, today I spent five and a half hours in the uh, law and um, uh, legal issues committee uh, going through every comma of uh, (laughs) corona-oriented issues pertaining to the next, only the next seven days, and then it's it's going to be redone. It's giving anxiety. I I would say so, (laughs) yes. Uh, Particularly, you mentioned having kids at home. I have, thank God, three kids. 10, 8, and 5, and it, it's it's really tough. It's tough because they haven't been at school for ages. Um, you know, it really impacts people's lives. To go back to your question, um, I feel a tremendous sense of privilege and not even a millimeter of cynicism, which is tremendously rife in our country, yes. uh, given the very odd situation that we find ourselves in. Um, multiplied by COVID, but I, I really feel, um, I would say, a huge privilege to be able to, even for a short while, impact um, the lives of people in the country that I so much love. And I mean that with all my heart. Sure. Um, so I was given this gift, this platform, to air my opinions and and the things that I care for, my agenda, uh, spend 50,000 million hours in committees (laughs) 
trying to do something good. How many committees are you on? Gosh, nine. Can we go through um, them? Uh, I, I, can try. I can try. <laughs> I can try. So it's the procedural Knesset committee. Okay. It's the financial committee. It's the economic committee. It's the uh, mitigating violence in the Arab sector committee. Oh my. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's the, what else is there? Is the, I said the legal one. Um, this is the Corona Committee, right. of course. Uh, work, Health, and uh, Welfare Committee. No, it's endless. It's completely wow. endless. That was one committee. Work, Health, and Welfare. Yes, 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 yes. And and for every one of those, um, you have tons of stuff to prepare yourselves on uh, for. Um, How do you keep up with it? I try very hard. <laughs> Meanwhile, so far so good, but <laughs> um, sleep is not something yeah, I'm getting a lot of. Sleep is for the week. Yes. Is for the, sleep is for the weekends. Uh, you know, that's what Paris, Shimon Paris, by the way, not only thought that, but he definitely lived by that. He never slept. I don't know what, how I, he I managed. know people like that. I try to do it myself. And I'll, and I'll go a few nights and then I'll just burn out. Of then, course. The Duracell know. ends. And then on Shabbat. So I'll sleep 12 hours. Like I'll Paris. sleep 12 hours on Shabbat. Anyway, so I try my very best. It's uh, you asked how it was. So yeah. it's it's breathtakingly um, exciting. Again, cynicism aside, sure. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity, and most of all, it's um, it's a tremendous schooling. It's kind of a training for better understanding of how things move. What are the processes? I've been in and surrounding politicians for the vast majority of my professional life. Um, and yet, you know, this is the inside of the inside. It's the mm -hmm. intricacies of um, the process itself. And so it's very much a learning process. Hey, what what has um, surprised you the most? The cynicism. Inside I, or outside? No, inside. Inside more. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know... Uh, Having lived in Israel for eons since I made Aliyah from South Africa, I mean, cynicism is just something that you, you know, it's there all the time. It's sort of a, a kind of a, a mechanism to to help us deal with all of the, um, I would say, difficult situations that we find ourselves in in this country. Um, and yet nothing really prepares you for the amount of cynicism that there really is. From all sides. From all sides, absolutely all sides, right, left, center, uh, in the, amidst the Israeli politicians. I think it's a, it's a kind of a um, mechanism to protect oneself mm. very much there in the Knesset. We we were we had on uh, Michal Kotler once a few a few weeks back. I heard that, and yeah. she she didn't get into a list this time. That's right. And we had Michael Oren, even though we had a glitch with that, and oh, we we couldn't air the episode in the end. But uh, <laughs> it was a wonderful conversation. Um, and, oh, and you know, he also fell out. And, and you know, somebody posted uh, someone who's very active in kind of the Anglo world of politics here. Why aren't there more Anglo's in politics? And my initial thought was that. You know, you're not exactly Anglo, even though you have wonderful South African English. You're you're Israeli, right? You're Israeli born. Well, I'm Israeli born, but I would say I'm Anglo. In your in mannerisms, my, right? Um, in what my does that manners. even mean? Like your mindset. Yes, you know. he's right. Yeah. He's absolutely okay. right. It's a different mindset. So, I, my my initial thought was, a lot of us who not all of us, a lot of us who came from from English speaking countries, you know, we came because we wanted to. We came out of a choice. Of course. And 
are we, are we just not prepared for this cynical aggressive kind of, yeah type of israeli political mentality i don't know i think um a generalization is not is not the right analysis here i think it's a matter of uh stamina i think it's a matter of resilience um which is a pretty strong word mm. but it you know i mean that's that's what i think is needed um and yes there is a kind of um i would say an abruptness um that is uh characteristic of the israeli um and yes it's it's not easy it's not easy and yet there's something um something about this directness that you know this is this is what it is so what you see is what you get um again it's a matter of taste but um i think that the anglo mentality does tend to be a tad more gentle mm. or maybe there are more rules to the game yeah <laughs> perhaps has what has surprised you that was kind of something that surprised you in a negative way let's say the cynicism of of what happens inside is there something that surprised you very much in a positive way you know i i love the direct approach i mean uh, it can be a tad more gentle but i love it because again what you see is what you get mm. so you don't need to be on your tiptoes and everything is between the lines and innuendoed um you deal and you um <laughs> it's pretty much in your face so <laughs> you you take it and you deal with it you yeah. know that's that's what i was taught you, you whatever comes at you you have to deal with it My parents grew up in a Soviet former Soviet Union in Lithuania in Vilnius and um they taught me to be tough you yeah. know mm-hmm. you can be gentle but you can still be tough sure. and work very very robota <laughs> this is the, <laughs> the mantra in my house so our, our crossfit coaches are also uh, <laughs> russian and robota is something we hear a lot during workouts <laughs> certainly so so mom and dad thank you for preparing me yeah. for this because it certainly is, it comes very useful. Did you plan did you plan on getting into uh pol- in national politics Knesset or is this something that kind of No, definitely. I uh um when I made Aliyah when I was 17, uh I wanted to do something that has impact uh on a national level. So it began with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um I did uh, a lot to get into the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the cadet course. uh first to make my parents sort of calm i studied and then went to mm-hmm. the army uh which is obligatory here of course and then um i wanted to get into the ministry of foreign affairs which is a pretty significant deal uh takes about a year um in terms of process and uh honestly i'm i'm, I'm very proud of the way and the and the path um i i I chose that um uh because of my knowledge of the international arena the fact that I lived abroad uh I wanted to make an impact this country means a huge amount to me uh the Jewish peoplehood means a huge amount to me um I think that the fact that I lived for many years in South Africa sort of um um I'm trying to think of the word it sort of created this this importance grew when I was living abroad because I was living in a Jewish community 
I was in a Jewish youth movement. Um, I understood, I felt what it was to be Jewish abroad, not in Israel, not right. to be taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when I come here and when I do what I do, when I went to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, when I decided that I wanted to make an impact on a national level, um, that was always in the background, that being in a Jewish community, being in the diaspora, being in a Jewish youth movement, not being able to always at all times shout out aloud in Hebrew, even though I was in a big Jewish community and it was sort of normal. I went to a Jewish school. Um, it very much impacted me when I was growing up. Uh, and yes, I wanted to make an impact and I still do want to make an impact on a national level. So it was in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in foreign policy. Uh, it was in the Federation of Local Authorities, working with all of the local governments in the country on a macro level, um, vis-a-vis the international arena. And yes, also in politics, uh, trying to impact in two main fields, two main sectors that are very close to me and I feel I have an added value in. And one is the Arab internal arena and the Arab regional arena, especially now with the Abraham Accords and all the amazing things that are happening. And second, the international arena. So the foreign affairs and the issues that I've been dealing with for years in my professional career. And hopefully I'll be able to make an impact even in the very short uh, period uh, that I have right now. Oh, it looks like you're certainly trying. <laughs> <laughs> what? What? Uh, you look. You know Arabic, right? I mean, I, I do. I do. Arabic. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. I love it. <laughs> you're fluent. Completely fluent. Well, you know, to say t- about yourself that you are completely sure. fluent in Arabic is quite presumptuous. Sure, sure, of course. But uh, my Arabic is very good. <laughs> yeah, is it Egyptian or is it more oh my uh, classical? Goodness. No, it's Egyptian. Egyptian. It's, uh, okay. Masri, Masri, Khalas. I took yeah. uh, many years of Arabic and. Uh, when I'm in, in college in the States and, and when I did study abroad here and um, I was learning, I started with the Fusha, you know, the, the modern standard. The classical, yeah. And then when I was here in Israel on junior year, they offered uh, Ulpan for people and my Hebrew was already pretty fluent. So I said, give me Arabic instead. And, and they arranged for me to have basically wow. my own personal Arabic Ulpan. Amazing. Studying with two Israeli Arabs. So I learned the Palestinian dialect. Amazing. And I was actually getting to a pretty... Not not a high level, but a fluent place. And then I went to the army thinking, I have a degree in Middle East studies. I speak Arabic. I right? And, and I go to the army. And and, actually, and uh, the first thing they said was, you know, well, the, the first first thing they said was, uh, no, no, we're going to make you a truck driver. I don't want to be a truck driver. I have a, de- a university degree. I have the- anyway, um, at, at the end of the day, once I got through all that, I went to Agat, just like you did, to the planning directory of yes. uh, doing international relations. And they said, no, your English is much more important to us than your Arabic. <laughs> um, everyone here knows Arabic. Not that many people know fluent English. So, <laughs> But now with the Abraham Accords, and, and when I went to Dubai, even though everyone speaks wonderful English there, um, I got to use my Arabic again. I it's was so amazing. happy. I was so happy. Such a beautiful language with so many uh, levels. That's why when you ask, are you very, very fluent? Yeah. There are so many levels sure. of knowing Arabic. It's just deeper and deeper and deeper. And everything is... Wow. Do people that you don't know here in Israel find it strange when you suddenly turn to them and start <laughs> speaking Egyptian Arabic? Yes. 
They like, think that they think that I'm from the Mukhabarat, right? <laughs> Basically, because it's like, wait a second, she speaks Arabic, and then what, why? why Egyptian? Why? Arabic? No, but why does right. she do that? Yeah. That's going what, what does this blonde woman speak Arabic? Yeah. <laughs> it's really odd. Yeah. I'm sure it's bizarre. And I love it. I love every moment of it. I love the language. I love the music. Yeah. I love the nuance. Do you ever do you ever put yourself in a scenario or in a situation on purpose where you'll sit down in a restaurant, knowing that people won't pick up on the fact that you speak Arabic because of being a blonde woman in an, in an Arabic <laughs> restaurant or, or in a situation and like surprise them like, oh, I heard you talking about me. Not really, because I mean, <laughs> we, we in Israel, it's it's pretty normal. I don't know. I mean, not that I speak Arabic, but the, the oddest thing that happened to me was that, I mean, in, and, and that's really, really out of the uh, out of this world, is that um, some Afrikaners happened to be in Israel mm. And they spoke behind my back. Oh, no. I don't you, spe- even, you speak Afrikaans. I, I don't really speak Afrikaans, but God knows that, you know, I had to to take it at school and do my matriculations in mm. it. And uh, I did understand what they were talking about. And then they were really <laughs> surprised because it's it's not, you know, your usual right. language. So it, it's interesting. You, we mentioned the, the Abraham Accords before and, and how excited we are in your opportunity to use Arabic. When, when you were in Egypt, of course... The, the, the nature of the relationship between Egypt or in Egyptians and Israelis is, is quite different than the, the relationship that we're finding that quite. we have with Emiratis. Um, you know, one, did you have a chance to interact with Egyptian society, uh, unofficial society in any way? And, and two, I guess, um, how, how could you define where that relationship might go as a result of where we're going with, with the UAE? Well, right. yeah. and, and by the way, when were you in Egypt? 2003 to 2006. Okay. Um, wow, that's a huge question. Right. I spent three whole years in Egypt. That was before I was married. Uh, I was a Jewish, Israeli woman, um, a representative of all evil. <laughs> um, you know, the Safar of Al Amara, it's the embassy in uh, the Israeli embassy. Um, in Cairo, and it was uh, it was quite uh, a surreal experience because it is uh, not only different; it is, I would say, 180 degrees different mm-hmm. to the uh, burgeoning normalization between us and the Emiratis um, currently within the framework of the Abraham Accords. In fact, when uh, I went out with friends, uh, foreigners, and Egyptians, etc. And uh, some guy would sort of start uh, trying to pick me up because he didn't know where I was from. All I needed to say was, Anam and Israel, and that was that. <laughs> that was that. So it was a very easy tool <laughs> to use. Um, but it was really something quite astounding to see people's expressions when they heard I was from Israel because they just did not expect me to be that Israeli, because the stereotype was not me. It was a soldier, it was a big, uh, strong, aggressive man um, trying to kill Palestinians. That was the image, and I just didn't fit that stereotype. Um, And it was crazy how much um, that stereotype sort of characterized the minds of very many intelligent well-educated mm. people. It was right. just that was what was 
there. So to live through that. Um, and then that was right after the second intifada, kind of as it was exactly. winding down. So I'm sure that was, you know, after kind of a hopeful 1990s or the second half of the 90s when the region was actually very hopeful towards peace. And, and Shimon Peres was, you know, in the Shvung and, and, and the Shvung, and, um, uh, and, and the Oslo Accords, and then everything kind of crashed down with the Second Intifada, and tensions rose. That's also you know, kind of when, you know, um, 20, I, I came in the middle of news that. cycle. Yeah, so that one must have been an incredibly tense time. It was very hard. I remember in two thousand and three, Mubarak, late Mubarak, the president said that um, there will be no diplomatic relations, no relations whatsoever with Israelis, apart from what was absolutely necessary. That was his declaration. And then in 2004, after the death of uh, Arafat, mm. uh, in fact, that sort of opened the door to kind of a strengthening of those relations, both economically. Uh, in 2005, the QIZ, the Qualified Industrial Zone Agreement, the mm -hmm. economic agreement between Israel, Egypt, and the U.S. was signed. So there was more of a moving closer. And Omar Suleiman, the late head of the... Uh, Egyptian intelligence. Uh, the Egyptian Mukhabarat, he, uh, in fact, uh, sort of brought to a kind of a, a more closer relationship, although you cannot compare to anything that is happening with the Emiratis right now. Right. No normalization. But I, I can tell you a little bit of a, a fascinating anecdote with uh, Omar Suleiman. Yes. <laughs> Every time I came to visit him, and that happened about three or four times with the ambassador, um, he asked me, No? Medgoza? Are you married? Mm. And uh, politically correct aside, I always had to answer the same thing. <laughs> of course not. Um, and then he would say, but what, what's going to happen with you? You know, <laughs> it's time. I told him, but uh, Mr. Suleiman, I'm in Egypt. <laughs> Whom do you want me to marry? And then that would go on again and again for the three or four times that I visited him. Um, but that was very funny because politically correct in Egypt is not on a very high uh, place in the... Social order. That's funny. <laughs> the head of Egyptian and intelligence is taking an interest in your in your dating life, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Do Do you think that there will be an impact at all on Egyptian society because of the opening with the UAE and the Gulf states? To a degree, I do think so because the pressure is off Egypt. It's no longer the only Arab state. That's uh, a good point. Yes, uh, a huge amount of pressure was on Egypt because it was the only state. It was you know, kicked out of the Arab League at some point, and uh, it was really not the, the not done thing to to be close to Israel. Also, don't forget that, I mean, there was a lot of blood between right. uh, the two countries, uh, so it was a little bit different um, in, uh, in character to the Israeli-UAE uh, uh, relationship. Um, also, I think that... Uh, UAE, the leadership of the UAE, and I really say leadership because it's not easy what they've done. No. They've taken on a challenge, something that was unprecedented, and they declared, as with everything, we will be number one. And they've taken that on, mm -hmm. even though there are people from within that don't necessarily feel that this is the right thing. And they've just gone on to be exemplary in everything that has to do with normalization. 
and I, I honestly, I take off my hats. This is this is an example. So definitely, that takes off some of the pressure off of countries like Egypt and Jordan. And Egypt, of course, I mean, Oma Dunya, the mother of all like nations, the mother of the Arab world. Yeah, I mean, it it took a lot of the weight on its own shoulders before. It, it did, and and you know, even in in recent years, since um, Sisi uh, became the president, the government to government, the military, the intelligence cooperation has been even closer, right? And and they've kind of played an even more active role, especially as you know, every time we have the the rounds of uh, violence with Hamas in Gaza, they kind of take a very active role in Absolutely. trying to restrain them. And yet, we still hadn't seen, and we still aren't seeing the people to people at all, of, at all. At all, except for Haisam, who who is our one Egyptian. No, but he had the he he can only but do he it because price. he lives in America. We had we had uh, <laughs> we had kind of a foreign policy podcast with uh, an Egyptian, a Saudi, and an Emirati foreign policy analyst. And the Egyptian flat out said he, he basically had to leave Egypt. I mean, he had to in order to express these views. It's it's quite sad. It's um, not done. It's not no. done to to be in touch with the. It's it's very interesting. It's it's almost like a psychological uh, exercise to understand. Um, and having lived there for three years, I can tell you that every time I said that Anam and Israel, you had to see the look on people's faces. I mean, it, it just epitomized the... Jaws dropping. Seriously, I mean, they would look behind their backs to see who would be following them or who heard. Hmm. Um, it was that... Crazy. Even though you you were an official Israel too, you weren't like uh, trying to hide it. You were literally representing the state. No, no, of course, but yeah. there were no others. So <laughs> there was no others walking around the street. I mean, it was this thing that yeah. you could look at, sort of from a you know a pedestal and and examine this species, uh, because there were just no more Israelis running around Cairo. Um, it, it, the the normalization. Um, is just not there. And in order to be there, um, a lot needs to be done by the leadership. And the leadership has so many challenges, economic, um, in terms of population growth, in terms of um, potential, um, uh, I would say, Islamist forces from within that threaten the current uh, leadership that I'm not sure that this is very high on their agenda yeah. at the moment. We, we had on a guest, um, a journalist who was there for AP mm-hmm. for, for a number of years in Cairo, and he kind of he, he said something similar to what you just said, that they're, they're also not actively anti-Semitic. He said they're anti-Semitic in the same way people hate broccoli. You know, it's kind of like, <laughs> oh, okay, and we don't like Jews, like, but let's get on with our lives. Um, <laughs> but but, but I, I'd like to just stop yeah. you on that. You know, the, there's... Uh, an encouragement uh, has been an encouragement for years um, on anti-Semitic uh, caricatures in the newspapers. In favor of or against? No, the, of anti-Semitism. Mm. I mean, there's. Um, it, it was kind of a mechanism with which to let off steam yeah. um, uh, vis-a-vis the economic situation from within, vis-a-vis the lack of freedom. And Israel was an okay uh, object... Uh, vis-a-vis which one could, you know, let off steam. But always not let it completely out of control because after 20 minutes, every demonstration became an Mm. anti-regime demonstration. Yeah, you have to be careful with that. So it was sort of a, yes. Um, But I wouldn't say that a huge amount of effort was put into uh, not having those 
virulent uh, uh, anti-Semitic or, or antagonistic views. Um, it's not like someone's going to come out and stop somebody from saying something that's virulently anti-Semitic because then that would person no. would be looked at suspiciously as to right. why we are you just separate, right? I mean, newscasters, right. if they try to even hint at something, I don't even say right. pro-Israel, but kind of neutral on Israel, they get attacked. And well, but, but that's the thing, that ever since Sisi came to power, there's been sort of a, a trickle of stopping that, mm. but a trickle. And it, it's such a small trickle I cannot say that it's not there. It is there, but it's such a small trickle and it's a hundred million person country. it's a huge country. Yes, so it would take uh, uh, quite a number of years to feel this trickle. You notice it a little faster with uh, Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. Which is a smaller country and it's more of a centralized rule and and I think they're probably better organized. And, And you see it, you can see it. I've been noticing it for the past five, six years. You see the trickle of you know, um, warming the messaging to first to Jews and then slowly and slowly to Israel. Absolutely. And and it's incredible to see it. But the UAE, we've talked about it on the show before. We've mentioned that they're kind of like the R&D hub of the region. Without and, a doubt. And, and they can do it. And they do it really fast and well. And the people trust. We've had, we had a number of Emirati episodes here. And of course, uh, you and I are both in the same forum with with Emiratis, and we know a lot of uh, amazing forum. It's it's unbelievable, and they truly love and trust their leadership. Yes, they do, but it's not know, an it's, act. It's, it's just it's, like here, it's exactly <laughs> the same, completely the same, totally the same. <laughs> but but I want to say that honestly, there's you know, having studied at Harvard and what leadership is all about with the famous Heifetz course that. Uh, speaks about leadership in, in w- when it's difficult to lead, not mm-hmm. when it's easy, when it's challenging, when it's against the odds. And that's what the UAE leadership is doing. That's yeah. what they did um, with everything to do with the Abraham Accords. And uh, s- seriously, seriously, I say this in every, uh, on every opportunity, um, this is game-changing. Absolutely. And... Uh, I completely understand that one would see that leadership in a in a kind of a a light that is um, they trust their leadership. Mm-hmm. You know that that's that's um, it's exemplary in yeah. that sense. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I I got to ask you. You know, you're in Egypt, and it's it's close enough to Sudan, and kind of in all of this Abraham Accords, nobody ever talks about Sudan. Well, <coughs> Sudan and normalization. I think it doesn't go in the same uh, sentence. No, right? I think the I think the the huge thing about Sudan is the security issue and the fact that um, it can no longer, in such an easy way, serve as a very comfortable platform for countries for, like yeah. Iran and others with which to do what they feel like in, um, and that is the huge uh, game changing aspect of that agreement i think the normalization is not the highlight of that <laughs> of that agreement and perhaps that's the reason sure. it will also take time absolutely i'm going to go on vacation there after covid <laughs> get a timeshare that's the first place i was going to go on the blue nile on the blue nile or the white nile which one is in khartoum actually <laughs> when we first met you go we we met at at uh, the american university in washington oh and there was <laughs> under my uh flat under my apartment there was a sudanese restaurant so good it was what? so good. So what, good. What is Sudanese food? Well, they have sh- their version of shawarma, 
But wow. the thing that we ordered I most... I feel like shawarma right now. Right? <laughs> should, should we order? Uh, yes. <laughs> the thing that we ordered most, do you remember? They had their version of ful. And, and I assume it's closer to what the Egyptians call ful. It was stewed fava beans, <laughs> right? And then they served <laughs> it... And they served it with feta, olive oil, Red cumin. Onions. It sounds like an Americanized... No, this no, was, no, this these guys. Was, these guys. This was speak. a hole in the wall yeah. of, of hole in the wall. Oh, so seriously? It was, in retrospect, in, you know, now at thirty six, I would probably look at that restaurant a little bit differently in its <laughs> way of like cleanliness as, as I would when I was eighteen walking in that. But where like, else can you get a full meal for three dollars in college? Like, it was brilliant. It was. It, everybody <laughs> there was like Sudani. They had Al Jazeera up on the wall. Wow. It was, it was very. Um, and well, I got one to, would say and I got to practice my Arabic there all the Amazing. time. Amazing. Because they didn't speak English. Actually, uh, I, 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 I recognize that uh, our time is short, but I, I want to just ask, um, you, you, it's interesting, I think, and this is correct, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you live in Lod. No, I lived in Lod for 10 years. You did years. live in Lod. I did, for and 10 that, years with my husband and kids. And yes. it was a, is that because of a choice that you made that you wanted yes. to be a part of the community? Cheap rent. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. Uh, no, um, no we, this, is, this was like an expression of our Zionism, right. I believe. Um, it's, it's the real thing. Uh, it's a beautiful city. It's the oldest city in Israel, by the way, 8,000 years old, older than Jerusalem, older really? than Jaffa. Yes, the only older city in the area, not in Israel proper, um, is Jericho. Um, so not within the 67 borders, but also um, a beautiful city with, uh, you know, uh, Muslim, Christian and uh, Jewish uh, importance and significance. In fact, St. George, right. the yeah. one who killed the dragon, um, is supposedly buried there. I remember the, the monastery from Moradech, uh, yes. so I remember that I hadn't, I have not had an opportunity to be there except for that one class that we went there to learn about the monastery. It's very interesting, yeah. uh, did, Greek Orthodox Church. Did you move there as part of something organized, or was it no, just like we're going to jump into Lod and try not to? Not at all. It's it's well, the credit belongs to my husband. He created the Lod Foundation, and I joined him. He always says that uh, I married him because of that. <laughs> um, he, he perhaps he's right, um, but we did quite a lot of community work and uh, a lot of things that are, I think, are good um, with the wonderful people who live there. And it's a kind of a a myriad of um, a mosaic mm-hmm. of civilizations that are all embedded. It's kind of mirrors the general Israeli population. You were active, and you still are in Knesset, in trying to work with the Arab segment of society. Of course. How do you see uh, their their inclusion and, and their success or lack of today? In the Israeli in, in society? Israel, yeah, in Israeli society. Look, Israel is a, is a very pluralistic country. It is... Um, it encompasses a lot of uh, cultures and uh, religions. Uh, it's very, very multifaceted. And uh, a very big sector thereof is the Arab sector, which, by the way, is not homogenous in any way. There are the Christians and the Bedouins in the north and the Bedouins in the south. Sure. There are the Druze and the Muslims that are non-Bedouins. Uh, there are the small villages and the big towns and... Um, they're very different subsections within the Arab sector, and they don't all completely love one another. No. Um, and they're different in mentality and culture as well. 
Um, I think that there's a long way to go in Israeli society in general, in the general inclusion of all those um, tribes, mm. not only the Arab ones, but in general. You're talking about uh, President Rivlin's tribes, Exactly. Right? Yeah. President Rivlin spoke of four tribes. I think there are many more. Sure. Um, so whether it's the different rounds of immigrations, Ethiopians, Russians, I mean, my own family um, was... Uh, there were immigrants not so long ago. I mean, I grew up in a completely Russian-speaking home. Um, but but there's a long way to go um, from both sides. And yet I feel that um, inclusion is sort of... Um, it's sort of an oxymoron. There's a lot of inclusion and there's a lot of exclusion. Um, so there's, there's a, on the one hand, the fact that there are different schools and uh, people are studying in Arabic... And, and separately in Hebrew, there's a lot of space for one's own autonomic uh, culture and language mm-hmm. and religion, freedom of religion. A- and yet at the same time, there's um, it, it makes people live in sort of separate realms that don't always um, find a common ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I feel that there has been an encouragement in the past decade, by the leadership in this country, of the separate separatedness, I call it, although I'm not sure that's a real word, mm-hmm. um, and and that pains me, because um, there are differences between people, but that's the beauty. Yeah, right. Uh, people are people are people, and I just don't care where they're from. There are good Jews and there are bad Jews, and there are good Arabs and there are bad Arabs, and there. That's human nature, and people are people are people, you know. And and this is the the grandness of Judaism. Yeah, that's that's inherently, I feel so strongly about it that I cannot understand and fathom how one can look at it differently. And there are people who look at it differently there are many in this country. Look at it differently, unfortunately. And, and unfortunately, I would also say that there are many in this country's political culture who right choose to to. Sp- specifically focus on those differences as weaknesses and to drive exactly. a wedge between and, it, and it's exactly it sort of seems as if th- there's like a political interest to do that and that's so sad right. uh, particularly in a country like this which is not just another country it's a country with um a, it, it's the sanctuary of the jewish people given all the persecution that they've encountered throughout centuries and you know the the a kind of a, it needs to be a beacon of light mm-hmm. and uh, um, a kind of a granule of tikkun uh, olam. That's how I feel very strongly about that. And uh, and I, I really, I feel that I dedicate my professional life uh, to living it, not just speaking about yeah. it. You know, I'll, I, my hope, my hope is a, a lot of these, these kind of the hostility that you see, you get within some segments of Israeli society towards the Arab world, towards the Palestinians, and towards Israeli Arabs as kind of an offshoot of that is because of years of uh, we've been in a conflict, right? And, and and you know the more we're separated, the more you tend to otherize someone, and you come into less and less practical contact with them. Two things have happened this past year that leave me very hopeful in this regard. One is COVID. 
and and for those of those of our listeners and viewers outside of Israel, um, the many many Arabs are prominent in the medical community here uh, as doctors, as nurses, as pharmacists, True. especially, um, and people having to interact in very positive ways with Israeli Arabs, I think is going to do, has already done, and I think is going to do marvels, and I hope it does, um, for for that kind of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, um, br- bringing the, the Arab segment of Israeli society and the Jewish segments together. And the second is the Abraham Accords. And, you know, you saw, we all saw, uh, over 130,000 Israelis Jumped on planes in the, in the two months. Maybe why we are where we are right now. And and uh, <laughs> careful. Um, and and made and made their way to Dubai as fast as they could. Now, of course, Dubai is ninety percent not Arab or eighty percent not Arab, but they flocked to an Arab country and they had a positive experience in an Arab country and they were welcomed in an Arab country. And we've never had that before as Israelis. Exactly. And to do that... And by the way, that yeah. also united Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis because... Do you think it did? Of course. You, you don't think they were um, um, maybe felt left out by this or that their cause was left out in any kind of way? If you walk the streets of Dubai, you yeah. heard uh, Palestinian Arabic all over the place. Yeah. 90% of the Arab Israelis which were there. Yeah. And, and Even those who came against it and, and spoke out against <laughs> it, like they, they were just there. Fantastic. <laughs> and I think it's going to soften those those kind of Israelis that I don't want to point out at this point right or left because it's just meaningless, but those Israelis who are either afraid of Arabs or hostile to Arabs or who grew up, you know, because they're the enemy, all of a sudden, no, we went to a part of the Arab world and we were welcomed beyond belief. And many of us now have Arab friends in the Gulf, and, and I think it's going to bring down more walls. You know, just to be fair, there are lots of Arabs in the country that are also antagonistic to the Jews. Mm-hmm. Sure, so absolutely. this kind of an island sort of uh, mentality uh, on both sides needs to be broken down, needs to be um, uh, focused on in a positive way in terms of, you know, for example, 22% of the population is a huge issue in terms of the economy sure. as, a, as an engine of growth, the potential there, in terms of the uh, cultural diversity. Um, this is the strength and the future, uh, whether somebody likes it or not, of this country. Uh, together, there's no other way. So um, that's what I believe in. I feel that the Abraham Accords and what has happened with the UAE and Bahrain and soon uh, Morocco, flocking to Morocco yeah. once this uh, lockdown ends. Eat some Bastia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but this will be mirrored, I think, in a decade in the uh, better understanding amidst the people within as well. I, I hope so. I really hope yeah. so. Um, I'd, I'd love to, with the time remaining, and we promised we'd let you go early, um, <laughs> would love to get it just to finish up kind of with a little bit of politics here because what can we do? We're going oh gosh. to... Uh, I thought I was going to get away with uh, no politics. Not, not speaking politics. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just so curious, you know, what happened to this government? Why, uh, you know, and, and feel free to rant and feel free to... Uh, or feel free to ignore the question if you want. Um, that's Let's also ignore okay. the question and go on. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, it, 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 but the... But let's ask in a, in, in a different question, kind of a more on you and your personal goals. Um, you're, you are running again on the on the blue and white uh, ticket. 
Um, and if you could achieve, let's, you know, let's say you have whatever window of time you need to achieve one very practical initiative. Okay. Mm -hmm. As a Knesset member, what would that be? You know, not, I'm not talking about world peace and ending in hunger, but something very practical, maybe a law that you would pass or oversight of something. What would that I be? I wish I could introduce laws, but in between governments, it's uh, it's uh, not a tool, a mm. parliamentary tool, which is possible. Um, but uh, taking women and women leadership in order to raise more awareness to the violence and the rampant crime that has been the everyday life of the Arab street is something that I very much mm. uh, look forward to doing, uh, plan on doing, and shall, please God, do. Absolutely. Wow. And do, do you see that, um, I mean, obviously that's something very practical and something that can be done in a short time. Uh, do you think there's been progress in that direction in, in recent years? Uh, in terms of violence on the Arab street, mm. it, 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 it became worse. Became, it became worse. Yes, on the contrary, it became mm. worse. So instead of becoming better, it became worse. Do I think that it can be tackled? Yes. Having lived in Lod, which was rife with crime, sure, uh, drugs and whatnot, being a very poor city, in 2015, no, in 2005, my apologies, former Prime Minister of the State of Israel, Ariel Sharon, took all ministries in the government, in his government, and made a huge campaign against crime and violence in Lod, and succeeded. Um, so if there's a will, there's a way. Okay. It's a huge will and a huge mm. budget and a comprehensive solution, which exists with religious leaders, yeah. with local leadership, with education, with informal education, with policing, but it's possible. Uh, do you, it seems though that there's more attention brought to it, at least on the national level. That this <laughs> for, is for political reasons at this mm, moment. For political reasons. But even if it's for political reasons right now, let it be as yeah. long as it gets done. Fantastic. Do you do you, last political question, and then and then we'll, we'll oh with those up. political questions. Oh, I didn't no. notice <laughs> politics questions. Um, do you think there'll ever be? And maybe soon, an Arab party sitting uh, with the, with Zionist parties in a government. Do you think we'll break that barrier at some you point? You know, if Ra'am, mm. uh, which uh, ironically is the Islamic movement, uh, it is if, ironic. <laughs> it is ironic, but if if it managed to pass the threshold to get into Knesset, which doesn't seem very likely at this moment, I believe it would sit with a Zionistic uh, so-called. Party mm. and yes, I do think so. It was like that at the beginning of the state, uh, moved away from it, and it shall come back because we are destined to live together. Full stop. For our listeners that might not understand the nuance, as an Islamic party, is that because they're they're less nationalistic? They don't. What 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 about that particular party makes well, them more prone to engaging? No, no, no. Not engaging. It, sorry, that's the wrong word. To to agreeing to sit in a government with the. With I don't president. think it's the actual party. I think it's the specific persona, ah, okay. who is very liberal and very open, had a very moving speech in Yom Hashoah, the day of the Holocaust, uh, expressed understanding and deep acknowledgement of the 
loss and the narrative of the Jewish people, which is not a given no, it's not. by an Arab politician, uh, and just seems to be a persona which uh, who is more prone to to sensitivity towards the other side for the purpose of forwarding his own constituency, which is fine. Um, I'm not sure that would characterize every persona uh, leading that particular party. We're talking about the Islamist party. It's the Muslim Brotherhood in small. <laughs> um, but he is relatively pragmatic and willing to uh, accept. And the acceptance of him from the other side is likewise. Uh, there's a very big, um, I would say, disappointment amidst the majority of the Israeli Jewish public, not to mention the Arab one, of Arab politicians um, because they seem to take the so-called representation of the internal Arab population within Israel towards places that are not day-to-day -day issues pertaining to their lives here, but rather to the Palestinian issues. There's an anger towards them amidst the actual Arab population within Israel. Mm. Um, they claim that they don't really represent them, uh, which is again ironic. Um, and ironically, the Islamic party is doing so, and there is an expression of that support uh, in the Arab street, but it's too small of a support to be able to pass the threshold to get into the Israeli parliament. Mm. So we'll have to see. Fantastic. And for those who are interested in the intricacies of Israeli politics, we will do a whole episode ahead of the elections with political analysts just to break it down and understand how all of this works. Um, I'll close with with a with yeah. a fun question. Uh, we always try to close with a fun question. Let's assume that uh, tomorrow there is no more COVID, uh, inshallah. And, and, and uh, for a second, you're not in election mode. And you're not in election mode. <laughs> um, and the airport is suddenly back open. Where is the first place that you would like to travel to? On a plane. On a plane, or, anywhere. Or, or by boat, whatever. Or by boat, whatever. <laughs> Where's the first other country? You can go and travel. There is no more. No question. Issue. UAE. <laughs> Without a doubt. <laughs> I'm dying to go back. It's unbelievable. Yes. And, and where is the, let's say this, uh, in Israel, where is your favorite place to visit? Oh, wow. I love, I love so many places. I'm trying to think. I, I would go to the beach. I would go to the beach just to see the sea and the water, and it soothes me. I love it. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. <laughs> How can people um, follow you? How can people well, watch what you're doing or, or you know, if they want to spread your message, and, and especially in this election time? Number number of uh, opportunities. Facebook, easy. LinkedIn, Twitter. Um, and soon there'll be a... An official Facebook, but you know it all works, and I'm very, very open, and I'd love uh, friends from within and from the region to uh, reach out. It'll be my honor. Fantastic! And we Thank actually, you for the opportunity. We, it's we're so glad you joined us, even after a long day. And we actually do have listeners, literally <laughs> everywhere in the Middle East except Yemen. Oh, <laughs> next time! Next, next time! <laughs> And, and Libya, Yemen and Libya. So if there are any Yemeni. people know people in Yemen and Libya, we'd love to have you watch the show. Uh, 
member of Knesset, Chavrat Knesset, Ruth Wasserman Landis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. And it's been a pleasure. I didn't even notice the time went by. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. And we wish you uh, all the best. We wish you a lot of success. Bezrat Hashem. On the personal level, on the national level, because it seems like uh, what you're doing is truly for the good of the society and for this country. And so we can only uh, just wish you success. Thank you very much. And we'll catch you all next time. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com. And feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.